Welcome back to the Expert Hour. With me today is renowned jewellery expert and historian Dr. Usha Balakrishnan, having authored several popular books on jewellery, including Treasures of the Deccan, Jewels of the Nizams, and Dance of the Peacock, Jewellery Traditions of India. Dr. Usha Balakrishnan is also the chief curator of the World Diamond Museum. Sandeep and Gitanjali Maini Foundation has engaged with Dr. Balakrishnan several times over. She has been a speaker for events conducted by Raja Ravi Varma Heritage Foundation and is also a well-wisher of the institution. It's wonderful to have you on the Expert Art, ma'am. And I'm so looking forward to this very special episode titled Beyond Beauty, Wearing Jewels in India. Thank you, Archana. And thank you for inviting me to be part of this podcast series of the Ravi Varma Heritage Foundation. My association with the foundation actually goes back several years when I have been invited to present lectures. And over the last nine months, especially as we have all been in lockdown, I think the work that the foundation has been doing in getting the message of heritage and culture across into the public domain to the masses has been absolutely exceptional. It's been a real treat to be to listen to all these lectures. I think both, you know, Gitanjali and Sandeep Maini are now patrons uh, and what we lack in the cultural space are patrons uh, taking India's heritage to the world. And it is really a privilege to be part of this endeavor. And I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Thank you so much, ma'am. So without further delay, let me begin with this episode of The Expert R. So my first question to you uh, today is, can you give me a brief overview of Indian jewellery with reference to its background and history? So Indian jewellery, I look at Indian jewellery as an art form. While the large majority of people look at it as craft, for me, every piece of jewellery is a work of art. And in the Indian context, As an art form, it goes back to almost more than 5,000 years to the Indus Valley civilization when we have the earliest pieces of jewelry that have been discovered in the course of archaeological excavations. Uh, The history of jewelry after that uh, has been very sporadic, primarily because of the lack of surviving examples. Over the centuries, there have been constant upheavals in India There have been political and historical upheavals. There have been invaders who have destroyed and pillaged our gems and jewels. And also from one generation to the other, it has been customary for families to break up old jewels and recycle gemstones and the metal into more modern uh, settings. Therefore, the small number of pieces that uh, have survived this melting crucible are now scattered in museums and private collections around the world. There is also a large repository of Indian jewellery right here in India, still sitting with private collectors and in all our temple jewelries, in our temple treasuries. But in order to study Indian jewellery, we really need to look at it from a multidimensional perspective. So, uh, would you then say that jewels are just beautiful confections of gems and metal? Or is there something more to Indian jewellery than meets the eye? Oh, there's definitely much more to it than meets the eye. Every piece of jewellery tells a story. It's embedded with deep mysteries and deep stories. Now, beyond adornment in ancient India, for example, men used jewellery to exhibit their power, their virility Mm. and their social status. 
gemstones form the material wealth of their empire. So objects like jewels, like turban ornaments, necklaces, and armbands were worn by the Maharajas to flaunt material might. And importantly, their treasuries were repositories of gemstones because jewelry was extremely portable and they were used to fund wars, to bribe enemies, to purchase loyalty. To Indian women, jewels were not merely objects of community and statements of style. They were quintessential statements of their, for example, marriage status. In fact, devoured of jewels, her a woman's widowed status is unquestionably proclaimed. But they also functioned as social barometers indicating rank in society. Jewels enhanced fertility. They protected against the unsettling effects of the planets and they served as talismans against the all-pervading evil eye. For women, importantly, jewels was thridhan. That was their personal wealth that they could use in times of need. So therefore, you know, jewels, there are so many layers of meanings to every piece of jewelry. There is the physical form and the beauty of that physical form. Every jewelry is embedded with such a, is a multidimensional personality, so to speak. Those are such interesting observations that, you know, you're bringing out as we speak. So tell me then, is there a difference in the jewels worn by royals, wealthy people and tribal folk? Actually, there are three distinct categories of jewels that were made uh, in India. In the first category were items that were made for daily use. You know, as per tradition, no Indian woman and was ever seen without a set of basic ornaments. This comprised usually of earrings, bangles, maybe a chain around the necks, maybe the tali or a mangal sutra for a married woman. Yeah. These were worn on a daily basis and designs and materials also reflect region, caste, class, uh, geographical origin, etc. Now, in this category of jewels also is the large number of folk and tribal jewels of India. That is an entire body of jewelry uh, that is such a vibrant and rich heritage of our country. In the second category were the ceremonial jewels that were worn on special occasions such as marriages and religious festivals by the more affluent members of society. Then, of course, there were the royal jewels. The most fabulous gemstones from the treasury were selected and set into these royal jewels. And in the final category are the jewels that were made for temple deities. Mm. Now, importantly, in the temples, there were images, for example, that larger than life size. Therefore, jewels were scaled to the size of the images in the deities in the temple. So if it was a 10 feet tall image or 8 feet tall, for example, is as the Tirupati Venkateshwara or the Sri Padmanabha Swami in, in Tirvanandapuram, the jewels were scaled to that size. So they were larger than life-size jewels. And then personal or Utsava Murtis or personal gods, miniature jewels were also made for these miniature icons that were made for personal worship. So, you know, there's so much of difference in terms of scaling, size, catered to which class, which part of society, which caste you come from, which religion, which community, which geographical part of the country. So there is this entire gamut of jewelry traditions in India. Brilliant, brilliant information that you're sharing with us. So what is it that you would say that drives the craze for jewels in India? Well, you know, in the past, if we look at it, jewels served as savings primarily. 
there were no banks jewels as i said earlier were extremely portable they could be easily melted they could be easily carried so the craze i think for gemstones and gold was driven by the fact that they constituted savings to a large extent but i think more important than that is that jewels were considered very important for the human body because they were worn on all the energy the nadis which was energy pathways in the body so jewels were very important to maintain the human body in complete equilibrium so these chakras these nadi chakras mm. are located you know right from the head down to the toe so there were specific parts of the body that a piece of jewelry had to be worn in the belief that they functioned like a, almost like an acute pressure acupuncture uh, needle on that point that gently stimulated that nadi and allowed the free flow of energy through those energy pathways how amazing is that so um what then attracts a scholar to indian jewelry the most is it the history the rarity or the artistry of it all of the above <laughs> all <laughs> absolutely i mean for myself and i'm speaking for for myself you know as a jewelry historian i have actually become a multidimensional entity i don't look at it only as a, a, from the historical point of view or from the rarity point of view i'm all the time charting the unknown exploring the unexplored i straddle history religion art craft even fashion especially culture trade and commerce so on the one hand i'm a historian i yeah. probe the social economic and political history that forms a backdrop for expressions of creativity and art and then i'm an anthropologist or an ethnologist because i study cultures and civilizations in order to understand the symbolism that is enshrined within the forms and then i become a gemologist because i have to probe the luminescent depths of precious gems i trace their mine of origin i kind of study how they are cut i study lapidary skills then i don the hat of a artist craftsman when i investigate techniques of manufacture the materials where did the diamonds come from where did the emeralds come from where were, what was the source of gold and silver i kind of explore what are the motives what is the origin of designs how did a particular form come into existence i try to trace sources of design inspiration i trace skills across not only within india but skills and traditions that came from outside india into india and ultimately i kind of bow my head bow my head down to our karigar the craftsman the ashari the patan yeah. working in that humble workshop and yet is able to create these absolutely beautiful works of art it's true right they just create magic with the pieces that they actually make for us it's absolutely really- and you know with very little training or with the kind of training that we are not uh, conversant with because this was guru shishya parampara traditions and skills that were passed down from father to son and you know it, it they didn't go to a school and learn the art of jewelry manufacture in one year or one and a half years it was a 10 year apprenticeship it was a 15 year apprenticeship they honed their skills over entire generations it's fascinating it's really fascinating so tell me then are there any jewelry galleries in museums in india you know sadly india uh, was known by the epithet uh, sone ki chidiya or the bird of gold mm. and i think that epithet was applied to india because of our rich heritage our rich jewelry history our 
rich wealth in uh, gemstones, our craze for gold, the fact that India supplied the world with diamonds for 2000 years, the fact that India was the gem trading center of the world for well on, you know, more than six or 700 years. We need a dedicated museum to Indian jewelry. We have, I mean, in the sense that uh, the National Museum uh, had a gallery that was dedicated to jewelry. It was called Alamkara, which I had actually curated and put together for them. It's now going undergoing a certain uh, a refurbishment. I think they are refurbishing the entire museum. Recently, in fact, early this year, I curated the jewelry gallery at the CSMVS, the formerly Prince of Wales Museum here in Mumbai. And there's a dedicated gallery to jewelry here in Mumbai. And then there are, you know, museums like, for example, the Amrapali Museum in Jaipur that showcases the rich folk and tribal silver tradition of India. Uh, It's a private museum, but it's open to the public. So I think, you know, we are on the path and I think the greater amount of awareness that is created, we deserve to have not one, but many, many museums dedicated to or galleries in museums dedicated to jewelry all around India. True that because it's really such a huge part of our heritage and of our culture. I think we should do more to preserve it. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, can you then shed some light on some of the greatest collections of Indian jewelry? You know, I've often been asked this question mm. and I always say that the greatest collections of Indian jewelry are right here in India. Because there have often been criticism, oh, you know, the best of our collection has gone out of the country. We are not going to be able to see it. It has been stolen and taken away. But I always say the greatest collections are lying hidden in India. They are lying in uh, private collections with old families. They have been passed down from one generation to the other. Many of our former Maharajas are still holding on to beautiful pieces of jewelry. And I think the museums, a lot of the museums around the country, as well as the Archaeological Survey of India is holding on to pieces of jewelry that came out of archaeological excavations. And above all, the temple treasuries are temples are still some of the greatest repositories of Indian jewelry. And I speak particularly of the temples of South India because we have this great tradition of Utsavams and decorating the Utsavam Murtis. In fact, adorning an Utsavam Murti with uh, jewelry is part of our Agamas. It's in fact enshrined as part of the religious rituals in a temple. But if we move out of India, I think, you know, some, oh, and of course, the Nizam's collection of jewelry that is in India, but sadly, uh, lying in storage, not taken out for exhibition uh, more than once in 10 or 12 years. So that is a collection that deserves a gallery of its own, or perhaps even a museum dedicated to the Nizam's jewels collection. And then there are fabulous jewels, Indian jewelry collections that are scattered in different parts of the world. I think the foremost among them, in my opinion, would be the Al-Saba collection mm-hmm. in Kuwait, one of the greatest collections. Then there is, of course, the collection that was uh, the jewels that were taken away by Nadir Shah, which are in Tehran. There is a huge collection in Russia, both in the Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg, as well as in the Diamond Fund in the Kremlin. Then, of course, there is the Victoria and Albert Museum in London and the British Museum, the Museum Musée Guimet in Paris, the Museum of Islamic Art in Qatar, the Altani collection was one of the finest collection, but that collection has now been dispersed. So I think we'll see it coming up in other private collections. So, you know, it is scattered, scattered all over the world. 
But again, to reiterate, the greatest collections of Indian jewelry are lying hidden right here under our very uh, noses, so to speak. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing this wonderful information with us. I think we can go on and on in this podcast for a very long time. But for now, this is it. Thank you so much for joining me on The Expert Hour today. Thank you, Archana. And thank you to the Raja Ravi Verma Foundation and to Geetanjali for giving me this opportunity to share something I'm so passionate about. Thank you. Thank you, ma'am.